If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You can see a situation where fairly rapidly the scale of the mortality and the scale of the sickness that caused the mortality would have got out of control. You've also undoubtedly got situations where the, where the usual standards for the care of the sick would not be able to be observed. And I think that's what must have happened. And trying to sort of envisage the scene and the scenarios, it must have been pretty awful. Hello and welcome to this new History Extra podcast series, The Black Death. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and this is episode four. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at 14th century medicine and asking, how do you fight a disease when you don't know what it is or what causes it? We'll be exploring how the stars and planets could make you sick, looking at the rituals and remedies used to help plague victims, and examining the state of medieval hospital care. To tell us more, I spoke to Dr Elmer Brenner, a specialist in medieval and early modern medicine at London's Wellcome Collection. And as Elmer told me, the experience of living through a pandemic over the last two years has offered up new perspectives on the experiences of dealing with the pandemic in the past. Prior to COVID-19, I think it's fair to say that many of us, including myself, would have a quite a distanced perspective on the experiences of the Middle Ages and would kind of say, okay, they were confronted by epidemic illness, but they didn't have modern day medicine. So they were powerless to to prevent it. They were very limited in terms of treatments, which people themselves at the time recognized. But we had this perspective on it that, well, here in the modern day, life is so radically different. We've got so many tools at our disposal and so much knowledge. And yet we have been affected by a major pandemic. And in many instances, despite our best efforts, we've been powerless to prevent it spreading. And I think that's just really interesting in terms of just allowing us to have arguably a more humane perspective on the people of the past and how they dealt with these problems. And in certain instances, to admire them for what they were able to do and for their own understanding of the spread of epidemic illness without all the modern scientific tools that we have at our disposal. So what might it have been like to live through this unprecedented medical emergency? For me, the first word that comes to mind is terror. For me, um, getting my head around COVID-19, and I know that it is a disease that has caused so much fatality, but at the same time, I took comfort in the fact that many people recover And equally that we knew fairly early on that it was a disease that was not as dangerous to infants and children as it was to older people, which I think for all of us was reassuring. 
the Black Death was much, much more dangerous and it caused much, much more mortality. It affected people at all stages of life. We have a sense of how we have been afraid over the past two years and of how we have had to check every aspect of our lives, you know, and and make decisions about, well, should I do that thing or should I not? What ramifications could that have for me and for people around me? Well, imagine that amplified multiple times and imagine a situation when you, you also don't have those tools at your disposal for people who are acutely ill as well that we have in our modern day hospitals. Let's head back then to this time before antibiotics and well-equipped hospitals, rigorous public health plans and germ theory. In order to understand how medieval people sought to prevent and treat the Black Death, first, we need to get to grips with how they made sense of this all medically. What were some of the dominant medical theories at play in the 14th century? Medical thinking in the 14th century when the Black Death happened was governed by a number of very, very kind of entrenched theories and medical learning at the universities and within monasteries and in other contexts was governed by these theories. And a lot of them actually derived from ancient medicine, so from many centuries earlier, and they were kind of very long-standing ideas. We're we're talking about Christian Europe, but the ideas had come, um, many of them had been transmitted from the ancient world to the medieval world via the Arabic world. So there were various translations of medical texts. The sort of trajectory was from ancient Greek into Arabic, in Arabic-speaking parts of the world, into Latin, um, and then ultimately into European vernacular languages at the end of the Middle Ages. So actually this thinking also encompassed the Arabic-speaking world, um, so different parts of, of Asia and North Africa. And also in Europe, there were also very important Muslim and Jewish communities, which also took on board these ideas in different ways and also had very important medical writers themselves who were very influential. One of these key ancient thinkers, who was still highly influential in the medieval age, was the Greek physician Galen. A physician who wrote in Greek but lived in in Rome in the early centuries AD. And his model was all about the inner workings of the body and the differences experienced by individuals. So he had um, a crucial concept, the four humours, which was this idea that there are these four main fluids inside your body. These four humours were black bile, yellow bile, blood and phlegm. And the balance of them within your body was integral to your health. On the one hand, each individual is different. So any given person might have a different preponderance of a certain fluid. So I might have more black bile than you do, for instance, in my sort of usual equilibrium. On the other hand, generally speaking, there needed to be, in a general way, a balance. So the four fluids coexist and they are in equilibrium. And if one of them got out of sync, if you had majorly too much of something, then you would be ill. And so that idea is all about what's going on inside your body, rather than the external factors that may affect your body. But medical thinkers also had ideas about how illness could be brought on by the world around you. Galen and the subsequent physicians who wrote medical texts that developed his thinking did talk about the things that happened to the body externally and often called these the non-naturals. 
And this, so this idea was because your body is in its natural state. So they were understood to be outside the inner workings of the body. But actually, we often think about them in terms of behavior. So they were things such as diet, the food and drink that you, you take from outside and you bring it into your body. Exercise, so how much you bring, put your body into motion. Sleep, so how much you allow your body to rest. Environmental things, which for plague becomes really important, so particularly the air. And also emotional states, the accidents of the soul, the things that happen to your soul by virtue of the emotional states that you enter into. As Elmer mentioned there, when we're thinking about the plague, one of the most significant of these non-naturals that we need to consider is air. What connection did medieval people draw between air quality and disease? So ideas about the air and health had been around for an extremely long time, um, since the ancient world. But in the 14th century, they took on a new prominence in frameworks of thinking about health. And this idea became increasingly dominant that corrupt air, also called miasma, air that was polluted, um, poisoned, adversely affected in some way, caused illness. Now, what's really important about this is that this idea became increasingly prominent in medical thinking from the very beginning of the 14th century or even the end of the 13th century. So that's before the Black Death affected Europe. So the idea was already there. And when the Black Death hit Europe in the late 1340s, miasma theory provided medical thinkers with a ready-made explanation for what was going on. The Galenic model of understanding everything in terms of what's going on inside the body and individual preponderances for certain states of health didn't really fit with what was happening because you were seeing this mass mortality that affected all kinds of people who, you know, had all kinds of humoral dispositions. And so how would you explain that? And that, so this idea about miasma was very, very helpful. Um, this idea that there was a corruption of the air and people were breathing this air in and it was making them sick. Corruption of the air provided a convincing explanation for what medieval people were experiencing when the Black Death hit. A rapid wave of disease that struck down several people immediately and quickly spread between people in close proximity. The physician Ibn Katima was one of those who made this connection from what he'd witnessed. He had first-hand experience of treating Black Death patients in the Muslim Kingdom of Granada. And in his medical treaty on the plague, he advised to, quote, always take care to have fresh air by living in houses facing north, by filling them with cold fragrances and aroma of flowers. The aromatic scents Ibn Katima particularly advocated included myrtle, rose water with vinegar, sandalwood and aloe. But bad air wasn't the only medical explanation for what was happening. There were some, also some larger ideas that were very important and were actually linked to this idea of miasma. And so there are ideas about global causes, so things happening on a level that was much, much greater than the human body, the macrocosm as opposed to the microcosm. And this was to do with astrology and the movements of the planets. Hold on. Let's just pause for a moment here. I know that I said we would be discussing medical theories in this episode. And now here we are talking about astrology. But something it's really important to understand is that the definitions we have of medicine today didn't really apply in the 14th century. 
I think for us today in the, the kind of medicine that we have in, say, Western Europe and the US um, that is hospital-based, astrology does not form part of that medicine. In late medieval Europe, astrology was a really important part of thinking about the human body, about how to stay healthy and about why you became sick. It was understood that the movements of the planets had a direct influence on the human body and that particular events in the heavens could have dramatic impact on health. One of the the kind of day-to-day core aspects of this thinking was to do with preventive medicine, so bloodletting, um, which was a really important practice for staying healthy. And it linked into this humoral understanding of the body that you have these different fluids. And if you remove blood at certain moments, um, you will get rid of any excess of a certain fluid and you will help to keep the bodily balance. So bloodletting was linked to astrology. So it was understood that certain signs of the zodiac had influence over certain parts of the body. And when you were in that sign, so when you're in the sign of Aquarius or Pisces, for instance, you shouldn't take blood from that body part because it could be dangerous. The French physician and astrologer Geoffrey de Meaux was one of those who deemed the alignment of planets to be responsible for events. And he was quite specific on the astrological details of the crisis. He used astrology to explain why certain towns were affected and not others, why the nobility got off more lightly. And he also offered advice on, quote, the best remedy to be taken against this celestial influence. And when it came to the emergence of Black Death, these astrological ideas actually linked quite neatly into those about miasma and corrupted air. Early explanations of the great mortality of the late 1340s spoke of a particular conjunction of planets that took place in the sign of Aquarius in the year 1345. And it was understood that this had a dramatic effect on the earthly environment and resulted in emissions of noxious air. So there's a connection. So there's an idea that something happens with the planets, it results in corrupt air or miasma, and that causes illness. Physician Guy de Chauliac witnessed the disease at very close quarters indeed, as he contracted the Black Death himself in Avignon. Suffering from a six-week-long fever with a bubo on his groin, He remembered being in, quote, such great danger that all of my friends believed that I would die. Guida Shiliak saw the causes of his illness as twofold. Firstly, there was the universal cause of the conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter and Mars. But this planetary conjunction wasn't happening in isolation. Guy thought it had a direct impact on the humours we spoke about earlier, making, quote, such an impression on the air and the other elements that just as the magnet moves iron, so it changed thick humours into something scorched and venomous. To modern sensibilities, these ideas in which the movements of planets and the zodiac have an influence on air, which then have an influence on bodily health, seem a bit left field. But Elmer suggests that if you dig a little deeper, they're not so strange after all. On the one hand, these ideas are quite alien to us, let's say. On the other hand, I think 
we have a full recognition of things like the effect of the seasons on our health. And we're, we have a heightened understanding of that right now with COVID. I mean, we've seen now over the space of two years that the incidence of the virus is worse during the winter months. So those winter months align with certain signs of the zodiac. So you can see that these ways of thinking are not totally alien. There is medical thinking that looks at the effects of the moon on the menstrual cycle and things like that. So, you know, I think really we can understand that medieval people took full account of the environment and that environment for them extended into the heavens. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply It's one thing to talk about the high-minded medical thinking of the time. But how much did all these ideas about corrupted air and the alignment of planets percolate down into everyday society? When the Black Death hit, was there any kind of medically informed response? Medical advice came from physicians fairly early on. And this is pretty interesting because physicians felt the need to offer advice and felt a responsibility to do that, but also recognised that they really couldn't cure people. They couldn't make people better once they had got the plague at this point. But in terms of preventing spread, there was advice. And some of this advice sounds rather familiar. It included, quite simply, and this is pretty important for us, avoiding close contact with the breath of someone who is infected. You know, if you're in a crowded space, and I'm now imagining myself on a train here, um, look towards the window. (laughs) Um, That one medical writer sort of literally said that. You know, try and look towards, try and move your face, your nose, your mouth away from that person. And you can see how that would would extend from someone you know to be infected to someone you think might be infected or might have had contact with an infected person. Something I was interested to ask Elma was whether this advice was coming from an understanding of miasma theory or whether it was just a response to the empirical evidence at hand in which people simply saw that if you breathed in an infected person's breath, you were likely to become infected too. I think it's both because I think this idea about corrupt air meant that you looked to where does the air come from a person who might have have become infected and it comes from their mouth and their nose. So I think it's the two things coming together. We can question how widespread was was theory about miasma. I think probably it was more widespread than we might imagine. I think we shouldn't underestimate 
how much medical knowledge was out there and, and shared by people whether or not they had access to books, particularly because there were medical practitioners who treated wide ranges of people and themselves had not necessarily had a university education, but had learned on the job and had great expertise by virtue of that. But also, I think there would have been a general understanding of how illnesses spread, like the common cold, for instance, that, you know, you've got four children and you live in a small home t- together and one has the common cold and then the next day the other one does. Within two days, they've all got it. Possibly they are touching each other and p- sort of playing with each other, but also they are breathing on each other. And I think people would have had an awareness of that. And Elmer suggests that this common sense understanding about disease being spread from person to person would have shaped other behaviours too. In the 1340s, there's no evidence of full-on quarantines in the sense we'd recognise today. But that doesn't necessarily mean that more informal means of social distancing weren't used. We don't know as much as we could about isolation mechanisms at that particular moment in time. But I also think that people would have had common sense about this. I think that they would have isolated people in whatever capacity they could. And also there's a growing awareness of how dangerous the spread was, of how quickly it spread from person to person would have sort of resulted in, by definition, trying to avoid contact as much as possible. And that's where it becomes interesting trying to think about, well, who were the people who offered care and what and what did they do? And here we move on to a question that's a bit harder to answer. Because while historians have medical texts detailing the big ideas of brilliant thinkers, it's harder to pin down who actually answered the call when it came. Who offered the day-to-day medical care in the community when the pandemic struck? For, For future plague outbreaks in the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the early modern period, we do know more about this. But I think for the particular, the great mortality of the the late 1340s, we don't know so much. The physicians who were offering advice in learned texts were not physicians who in any case got their hands dirty at all, as we would understand it. They might treat individual patients who paid them fairly high sums of money and they might visit them in their homes sort of pre-pandemic, but they were definitely not going to go out into the community. And when we look at who was dispensing medical care in the community, here again, we can see that our modern boundaries of what counts as medicine quickly become blurred. So if you're looking at a community setting, you're really looking at parish priests who had a very, very important role in healthcare, the religious who lived inside monasteries, so monks and nuns, and also there were also people who were not professed monks and nuns, but who lived inside monasteries as lay brothers and sisters, and who had an important role in authoring healthcare to the wider community. And I think we can expect those people to have offered help and to have done what they could. But this frontline care would have been no easy task, as infection rates began to soar. You can see a situation where fairly rapidly the scale of the mortality and the scale of the sickness that caused the mortality would have got out of control. And so, you know, if you've got plague pits where proper burial is not possible, you've also undoubtedly got situations where the where the usual standards for the care of the sick would not be able to be observed. And I think that's what must have happened. And that's where, again, thinking of that word terror and trying to sort of envisage the scene and the scenarios, it must have been pretty awful. As well as holy men offering care in the community, there were hospitals around at this time. 
but they were not quite like our hospitals today. Hospitals definitely existed and they were very important institutions at this time. And there were different categories of hospitals. So there were hospitals often in urban centres, often closely associated with a cathedral. So just for one example, the Hotel Dieu in Paris that was right next to Notre Dame Cathedral or the uh, Santa Maria della Scala Hospital in Siena in uh, Tuscany and Italy. And those were large-scale hospitals um, that were directly supported by the church. They were religious institutions in their own right as well. And they provided for wide ranges of sick people, including people who were acutely ill. So so people who were affected by dangerous illnesses very quickly. There were also other categories of hospital. There were leprosy hospitals that were provided specifically for people who had leprosy, which provided long-term care because this was a chronic illness. There were also hospitals for the blind, again, long-term care. And there were also um, less common, but they were becoming established, were hospitals for people affected by mental illness as well, such as Bethlehem Hospital in London. But what we don't know is how much any of these hospitals were able to offer an effective response during plague outbreaks. It's not that well documented about exactly what happened in the hospitals during the Black Death. The archives of particular hospitals may tell us things here and there, but quite often it's simply, it's recording mortality. And it's just not clear whether that's just because the plague spread to the people who were patients and they rapidly succumbed, or whether the hospital was taking in those patients. So for me, it would make sense that the hospitals that provided for acutely sick people took in plague patients. And I'm sure that they did. It was just not the same scenario that we would envisage. I mean, interestingly, a concern for us in the UK throughout the pandemic is the possibility that the National Health Service would become overwhelmed. But part of that concern is our complete taking for granted that the National Health Service will provide the care that people who are very sick from the virus need. I don't think it was the same scenario in the Middle Ages. The scale of the Black Death just was not able to, you know, these hospitals had specific numbers of beds that were not great, you know. So a large hospital like Santa Maria della Scala might have had 200 beds. But, you know, if you think about the number of people succumbing to the plague in Siena, it could not have coped. So I think the hospitals would have done what they could, but they would also have been mindful of the fact that it was a highly contagious illness and that they also needed to provide for other people who were very sick or needed help of other kinds. The writer Matteo Villani had a somewhat despairing attitude towards the ability of medical professionals to help those in need. He claimed that, quote, doctors from every part of the world have no good remedy or effective cure. To gain money, some went visiting and dispensing their remedies. But these only demonstrated through their patients' deaths that their art was nonsense and false. While we're talking about doctors and hospitals, I do want to make one little pedantic point here. If you type the word plague into Google Images, the very first picture that pops up is of a doctor wearing a distinctive beaked plague mask. Very creepy and sinister looking. I think you probably know the one that I mean. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that there were no beak mask doctors around in the 1340s. That was an invention of later plague outbreaks in the 17th century. But again, I think it's always interesting to think about the things that people would have done based on their 
understanding of what was happening. There are interesting images, certainly not from the 14th century, but from later on, from the 16th century, of face coverings um, in relation to leprosy, which is an illness that was not heavily contagious in the in the same way as plague. But interestingly, there was a foul kind of smell that came from people with leprosy. So you can understand concerns about miasma. Face coverings in those 16th century in images, which I find quite intriguing. I think, you know, if you're already telling people to look away from someone who may breathe upon them with miasma, then I think you might also deploy face coverings. I don't think it's impossible. Anyway, with that bit of myth busting out of the way, what methods and remedies did healthcare practitioners have at their disposal? It would depend on the context, the socioeconomic context particularly, but I'm sure that treatments would have been applied. Bloodletting that I mentioned earlier on was something that was a preventive to stay healthy, but it was also a treatment when you were sick. And plague tracts that were produced from maybe the 1360s onwards that were kind of advice manuals about plague usually have a chapter about bloodletting. So it, it's, it's, it is a treatment that was used. And again, it, it, hark, it harks back to that humoral understanding of medicine, so which had not been relinquished. So on the one hand, miasma is the cause. On the other hand, if you're treating the sick body, let's try and do something with the humors. But there were also medications. And these tie in also to prevention. So medications that involve fragrance, sweet smells that will counteract miasma. So things like mint, rose water, also smells that are powerful and not necessarily sweet, so vinegar particularly, things that were understood to um, prevent, but also they would form part of treatments, particularly distilled medicinal waters that you might be able to get hold of from an apothecary and things that you could apply to the body or you could drink it. The Islamic physician Ibn Katima gave his take on bloodletting in his medical treatise on the plague. He said that, quote, one shouldn't be too fearful or hesitant. I have observed the most wondrous things by bleeding. Ibn Katima recommended bleeding a patient two or three times a day, if, quote, one's powers and age permit. Of course, bloodletting is no longer considered an effective treatment for diseases like plague. But other healthcare techniques were even less scientifically viable by modern standards. But as Elmer told me, that doesn't mean that we should dismiss them as nonsense, because they made good sense within the more flexible medical frameworks of the time. It's, it's really interesting, and again, to think about different frameworks of thinking that people had, different strategies. So for me, I'm reluctant to use the word superstition, because I think that that sort of it's kind of bound up with some of our assumptions about what is orthodox, what is not orthodox, what we would consider not helpful, you know, that, that you know, why would you do that thing when actually science in inverted commas tells us that it doesn't work. But actually, we've, we've already talked about how late medieval people incorporated astrology into their thinking about health. They also very much incorporated um, magic and religion as well. And those two things sometimes came together. And this is something that we know more about for subsequent plague outbreaks. So for the Great Mortality, we don't know so much about this, partly because a lot of the documentation that we have is, is more in the form of kind of chronicles or, or government records and things like that. But by, say, the 15th century, when you've, people still faced pestilential illness on a regular basis, you have 
collections of medical recipes, incorporating some of these sweet smelling ingredients, among other things that I've talked about that ward off miasma. And you may get recipes specifically for plague. And among those could be things called healing charms, which were um, remedies that were understood to be effective through the power of words. So they might include, for example, recitations, sometimes in nonsensical language, understood to, to tap into what was understood to be a form of magic. But the same remedy might also include some appeals to particular saints of the Christian church, which also makes it a Christian remedy. So you might have something that is, it's a performative ritual. It involves words. It also quite often involves making different kind of gestures or um, making the sign of the cross on your body, reciting words out loud. And to us, I think we would say, well, hang on, how is that actually going to help? You know, but to people at the time, that was seen as incredibly helpful, particularly since it was taken very seriously that a kind of ultimate cause of, of plague was the intervention of God as well. So a remedy that involves appeals to saints makes a lot of sense. And in this sense, medical responses to the plague are fascinating, not only because they tell us about medical theory at the time, but also for what they reveal about the entire framework of 14th century thinking. I think certainly for me as a historian, I, I look at this differently after two years of our own experience of pandemic illness. And so people had very important frameworks of thinking that helped them to navigate the situation, helped them to make sense of what was happening. So this idea about miasma, ideas about astrological and divine causation, and also ideas about certain things that you could do. So taking care of the health of your soul, because it was understood that God had played a role in a key role in, in afflicting the plague, but also a broader understanding of the period that spiritual health was incredibly linked in with bodily health. So avoiding sin, repenting of sins, praying, doing charitable works, they were preventive in their own right. But I really, you know, increasingly, again, thinking about how we have lived through the last two years, I also think about resilience and pragmatism and doing what you can um, in the situation and recovery. Arguably, our world is always changing um, and people in the Middle Ages will have had the same experience. And also, I think another crucial thing to think about for medieval people is that even before they were affected by pandemic illness, life was precarious, health was precarious, they were vulnerable. So a fever before, you know, before any incidence of bubonic or pneumonic plague at all, any kind of fever could be fatal. You could have a tooth infection and it could be fatal. So life was precarious and you needed to make the most of life. You needed to try to be as resilient as possible and you needed to take into account the health of your soul as well as your body. Next week, we'll be delving into matters of the soul as we take a look at the spiritual responses to the Black Death, from mass prayers to self-flagellation. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Rob Blackmore.